This last time she was carrying a 9mm with three magazines and mace in her purse. And she had a balisong knife in her bra. I don't know what she's carrying now. The second arrest, I asked her very politely to give it up, and she did. Then in D.C. detention, she killed an inmate named Marsha Valentine with a spoon shank. So you don't know. Her face is hard to read. Grand jury found self-defense. She beat the first RICO count and pled the other one down. Some weapons charges were dropped because she had infant children, and her husband had just been killed in the Pleasant Avenue drive-by, maybe by the spliffs. I'll ask her to give it up. I hope she will. We'll give her a show. But, listen to me. If we have to subdue Avelda Drumgo, I want some real help. Never mind watching my back. I want some weight on her. There was a time when Starling would have deferred to these men. Now they didn't like what she was saying, and she had seen too much to care. Evelda Drumgo is connected through Dijon to the Tray 8 Crips, Brigham said. She's got Crips security, our guy says, and the Crips are distributing on the coast. It's security against the splits, mainly. I don't know what the Crips will do when they see it's us. They don't cross the G if they can help it. You should know Evelda's HIV positive, Starling said. Dijon gave it to her off a needle. She found out in detention and flipped out. If she's not armed and she fights, you can expect to get hit with whatever fluid she has to throw. She'll spit and bite. She'll wet and defecate on you if you try to pat her down. So gloves and masks are SOP. If you put her in a patrol car, when you put your hand on her head, watch out for a needle in her hair and secure her feet. Burks and Hare's faces were growing long. Officer Bolton appeared unhappy. He pointed with his wattled chin at Starling's main sidearm, a well-worn forty-five Colt pistol with a strip of skateboard tape on the grip, riding in a yaki slide behind her right hip. You go around with that thing cocked all the time, he wanted to know? Cocked and locked every minute of my day, Starling said. She felt pierced and lonesome in this goat-smelling surveillance van crowded with men. Chaps, brute, Old Spice, sweat, and leather. She felt some fear, and it tasted like a penny under her tongue. Brigham looked out the windshield and checked his watch. Here's the layout, he said. He had a crude diagram drawn hastily with a magic marker and a blurry floor plan faxed to him by the Department of Buildings. The fish market building is in a line of stores and warehouses along the riverbank. Beside the fish market on the ground floor, that's Evelda's lab. Entrance here in front, just beside the fish market awning. Evelda will have the watchers out while she's cooking the dope, at least three blocks around. They've tipped her before in time for her to flush her stuff. So, a regular DEA incursion team in the third van is going in from a fishing boat on the dockside at 1,500 hours. We can get closer than anybody in this van, right up to the street door a couple of minutes before the raid. If Evelda comes out the front... We get her. If she stays in, we hit this street side door right after they hit the other side. Second van's our backup, seven guys. They come in at 1500 unless we call first. We're doing the door house, Starling said. Burke spoke up. If it sounds quiet, the ram. If we hear flashbangs or gunfire, it's Avon calling. Burke patted his shotgun. Starling had seen it done before. Avon calling is a three-inch magnum shotgun shell loaded with fine powdered lead to blow the lock out without injuring people inside. Evelda's kids, where are they? Starling said. 
Our informant saw her drop them off at daycare, Brigham said. Brigham's radio chirped in his earphone and he searched the part of the sky he could see out the back window. Maybe he's just doing traffic, he said into his throat microphone. He called to the driver. Strike two saw a news helicopter a minute ago. You seen anything? No. He better be doing traffic. Let's saddle up and button up. Clary Starling had sewn shoulder pads inside her fatigue shirt to take the weight of the Kevlar vest, hopefully bulletproof. The vest had the additional weight of a ceramic plate in the back, as well as the front. Tragic experience had taught the value of the plate in the back. Conducting a forcible entry raid with a team you do not know, of people with various levels of training, is a dangerous enterprise. Friendly fire can smash your spine as you go in ahead of a green and frightened column. Two miles from the river, the third van dropped off to take the DEA incursion team to a rendezvous with their fishing boat, and the backup van dropped a discreet distance behind the white undercover vehicle. If a Velda security was out, it was well concealed among the regulars on the sidewalk. Around the liquor stores and in the grocery parking lots, men sat in cars talking. A low-rider Impala convertible with four young African-American men in it pulled into the light traffic and cruised along behind the van. Watching through the one-way glass of the back window, Starling could see the young men in the convertible were not a threat. A Crip gunship is almost always a powerful, full-size sedan or station wagon, old enough to blend into the neighborhood, and the back windows roll all the way down. While they waited at a traffic light, Brigham pulled the cover off the eyepiece of the periscope and tapped Bolton on the knee. Look around and see if there are any local celebrities on the sidewalk, Brigham said. The objective lens of the periscope is concealed in a roof ventilator. It only sees sideways. Bolton made a full rotation and stopped, rubbing his eyes. This thing shakes too much with the motor running, he said. Brigham checked by radio with the boat team. Four hundred meters downstream and closing, he repeated to his crew in the van. The van caught a red light a block away on Parcell Street and sat facing the market for what seemed a long time. The driver turned as though checking his right mirror and talked out of the corner of his mouth to Brigham. Looks like not many people buying fish. Here we go. The light changed, and at 2.57 p.m., exactly three minutes before zero hour, the battered undercover van stopped in front of the Feliciana fish market, in a good spot by the curb. In the back, they heard the ratchet as the driver set the handbrake. Brigham relinquished the periscope to Starling. Check it out. Starling swept the periscope across the front of the building. Tables and counters of fish on ice glittered beneath a canvas awning on the pavement. Sunlight made a rainbow in the spray of water from the fish-cleaning table outside, where a Latin-looking man with big forearms cut up a mako shark with graceful strokes of his curved knife and hosed the big fish down with a powerful handheld spray. The bloody water ran down the gutter. A boombox in the market was playing La Macarena loud enough for Starling to hear it clearly in the van. She would never again in her life be able to endure the song. The door that mattered was on the right, a double metal door in a metal casement with a single concrete step. Starling was about to give up the periscope when the door opened. A large white man in a luau shirt and sandals came out. He had a satchel across his chest. His other hand was behind the satchel. A wiry black man came out behind him carrying a raincoat. Heads up, Starling said. 
Behind the two men, with her long Nefertiti neck and handsome face visible over their shoulders, came Evelda Drumgo. Evelda's coming out behind two guys. Looks like they're both packing, Starling said. Brigham was on the radio. Strike one to all units. Showdown. She's out this side. We're moving. Put them on the ground as quietly as we can, Brigham said. He racked the slide on his riot gun. Boat's here in thirty seconds. Let's do it. Starling first out on the ground, Evelda's braids flying out as her head spun toward her. Starling conscious of the men beside her, guns out, barking, Down on the ground! Down on the ground! Evelda stepping out from between the two men. Evelda was carrying a baby and a carrier slung around her neck. Wait, wait, don't want any trouble, she said to the men beside her. She strode forward, posture regal, holding the baby high in front of her at the extent of the sling, blanket hanging down. Give her a place to go, Starling thought. She holstered her weapon by touch, extended her arms, hands open. Evelda, give it up. Come to me. Behind Starling, the roar of a big V8 and squeal of tires. She couldn't turn around. Be the backup, she thought. Evelda, ignoring her, walking toward Brigham, the baby blanket fluttered as the Mac-10 went off behind it and Brigham went down, his face shield full of blood. The heavy white man dropped the satchel. Burke saw his machine pistol and fired a puff of harmless lead dust from the Avon round in his shotgun. He racked the slide, but not in time. The big man fired a burst, cutting Burke across the groin beneath his vest. Swinging toward Starling as she came up from the leather and shot him twice in the middle of his hula shirt before he could fire. Gunshots behind Starling. The wiry black man dropped the raincoat off his weapon and ducked back in the building as a blow like a hard fist in the back drove Starling forward, drove breath out of her. She spun and saw the Crip gunship broadside in the street, a Cadillac sedan, windows open, two shooters sitting Cheyenne-style in the offside windows, firing over the top, and a third from the back seat. A fourth man in the back seat had the door open, was pulling Avelda in with the baby. She carried the satchel. They were firing at Bolton and Hare across the street. Smoke from the Cadillac's back tires and the car began to roll. Starling stood up and swung with it and shot the driver in the side of the head. Fired twice at the shooter sitting up in the front window and he went over backward. The Cadillac sideswiped a line of cars across the street and came to a grinding stop against them. Starling was walking toward the Cadillac now. A shooter still sat in the back window, his eyes wild and hands pushing against the car roof his chest compressed between the Cadillac and a parked car. Starling advancing on the Cadillac. Movement in the back of the car, the baby screaming in there. Starling held up her arm and yelled without turning around, Hold it! Hold your fire! Watch the door! Behind me! Watch the fish house door! Evelda? Movement in the back of the car, the baby screaming in there. Evelda, put your hands out the window. Evelda Drumgo was coming out now. The baby was screaming, La Macarena pounding on the speakers in the fish market. Evelda was out and walking toward Starling, her fine head down, her arms wrapped around the baby. Starling had her weapon pointed at the ground in front of Evelda. Evelda, show me your hands. Come on, please, show me your hands. A lump in the blanket. Evelda, with her braids and dark Egyptian eyes, raised her head and looked at Starling. Well, it's you, Starling, she said. Evelda, don't do this. Think about the baby. Let's swap body fluids, bitch. The blanket fluttered, air slammed. Starling shot Evelda Drumgo through the upper lip and the back of her head blew out.
Starling was somehow sitting on the ground with a terrible stinging in the side of her head and the breath driven out of her. Yvelda sat in the road, too, collapsed forward over her legs, blood gouting out of her mouth and over the baby, its cries muffled by her body. Starling crawled over to her and plucked at the slick buckles of the baby harness. She pulled the balisong knife out of Yvelda's bra, flicked it open without looking at it, and cut the harness off the baby. The baby was slick and red, hard for Starling to hold. Starling holding the baby raised her eyes in anguish. She could see the water spraying in the air from the fish market, and she ran over there carrying the bloody child. She swept away the knives and fish guts and put the child on the cutting board and turned the strong hand spray on him, this dark child lying on a white cutting board amid the knives and fish guts and the shark's head beside him, being washed of HIV-positive blood, Starling's own blood falling on him, washing away with Evelda's blood in a common stream exactly salty as the sea. Water flying, a mocking rainbow of God's promise in the spray, sparkling banner over the work of his blind hammer. No holes in this man-child that Starling could see. On the speaker's La Macarena pounding, a strobe light going off and off and off, until hair dragged the photographer away. A cul-de-sac in a working-class neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia, a little after midnight. It is a warm fall night after a rain. In the smell of wet earth and leaves, a cricket is playing a tune. He falls silent as a big vibration reaches him, the muffled boom of a five-liter Mustang with steel tube headers turning into the cul-de-sac, followed by a federal marshal's car. The two cars pull into the driveway of a neat duplex and stop. The Mustang shudders a little at idle. A federal marshal in uniform gets out of the driver's seat of the Mustang. He comes around the car and opens the passenger door for Clary Starling. She gets out. A white headband holds a bandage over her ear. She carries her personal effects in a plastic Ziploc bag, some mints and keys, her identification as a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, a speedloader containing five rounds of ammunition, a small can of mace. With the bag, she carries a belt and empty holster. The marshal hands her the car keys. Thank you, Bobby. You want me and Farron to come in and sit with you a while? No, I'll just go in now. Ardelia will be home after a while. Thank you, Bobby. The marshal gets in the waiting car with his partner, and when he sees Starling safely inside the house, the federal car leaves. The laundry room in Starling's house is warm and smells of fabric softener. She takes off her fatigue pants and throws them in the wash.